Howdy, I'm Kate Kavanaugh, and you're listening to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, where we're laying the groundwork for our land, ourselves, and for generations to come by looking at the way every thread of life is connected to one another. Communities above ground mirror the communities below the soil, which mirror the vast community of the cosmos. As the saying goes, as above, so below. Join me as we take a curious journey into agriculture, biology, history, spirituality, health, and so much more. I can't wait to unearth all of these incredible topics alongside you. Hello and welcome to the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast where we are laying the groundwork and doing the groundwork to introduce people to a myriad of different concepts rooted in complexity. What I like to call the threads of what it is to be humans woven into this earth. This week's interview is very special. I think every week's interview is special, but this one really touched on a concept that I have been exploring deeply in my life this last year, which is the idea of what is self and what is other in the interconnected web of life where we flow in and out of one another in these interpenetrations of beings that happen inside of ecosystems. I've been searching for ways to illustrate complexity that feel really tangible and really touchable. I find that so much of our world is being reduced to single causes or single solutions or single metrics and data points. And one of the things I really hope that you take away from the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast is just how beautifully complex and interrelated each concept that we explore is to everything else. I know that at the beginning of this podcast, we did a lot of explorations of agriculture And as I come back from my accidental hiatus, one of the things I want is for us to explore a broader range of topics in greater depth and explore some of the ways that they tie back to one another. And as I've been searching for authors and experts and humans that are able to illustrate complexity, the first person that stood out was today's guest, Alana Collin. I picked up Alana's book, 10% Human, back in February or March as I was preparing for the speech that I did in Texas, which you can find on this podcast. It's titled Everything Happens in Relationship. Alana was a real trailblazer when she wrote 10% Human uh, about a decade ago, really exploring the human microbiome at a time that it wasn't being discussed in the way that it is now. And it was my hope, and I, I think I was successful here in this interview, to sort of take some of the broad topics while not needing to go into the, the details of the book. 
But I was really struck by not just the amount of information that is contained in this book and the beauty of the information that is contained in this book, but Alana has a real gift for weaving all of these different concepts together and each chapter flows like this cascade of information with each interrelated topic tying into one another as she tells this story of what it is or rather what it isn't to be human. I want to pull this little quote to give you a little bit of a teaser Alana says, each of us is a super organism, a collective of species living side by side and cooperatively running the body that sustains us all. Our own cells, though far larger in volume and weight, are outnumbered 10 to 1 by the selves of the microbes that live in and on us. Together, the microbes living on the human body contain 4.4 million genes. That's 21,000 genes that we have that are human compared to 4.4 million genes that are other, which makes us only half a percent human genetically, or as she explains in the book, 10% human as there are nine cells of other for every one cell that is quote unquote us. This really deepened my exploration of this idea of what is self and what is other. And I think that when we're able to tie back the interconnectedness of life and the cooperative nature that unfolds in these holobionts, these organisms that act as entire ecosystems that have this biological, this evolutionary biology that is defining some of this symbiosis that's happening, whether it's the mitochondria that are really just ancient bacteria living inside of our cells that are are powering our lives, or it's the rich fabric of bacteria inside and outside of our body or the microbiomes and ecosystems that we interact with on a daily basis that are fundamentally changing us with each breath, with each touch. And it was such an honor to get to explore this at a greater level with Alana and also to kind of touch in on some of the current work that she's looking at in terms of how the microbiome and some very complex factors explain the obesity epidemic that we're experiencing. I think that you will take away so much from this interview. I know that I derived a great sense of joy. Um, Just as a heads up, you can hear some of the rain that is happening in the background and the torrential downpour uh, in, in Alana's home as we do this interview. I I'm so honored to be back in action and exploring these realms of complexity with you and really laying the groundwork for the ideas of complexity and cooperation and interbeingness that we have a chance to experience here in this life. I am also so excited on today's episode to introduce you to our first sponsor here on the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. And I'm going to give them a shout out here, but I want to tell you, 
don't don't skip over it. I am <laughs> really working to bring you sponsors that not just align with with my values, but align with what I think your values are as the listener and also that tell us a story. Whether that's a story about our food or a story about our health. And this one is a story about farming. It's a story about garlic that I am thrilled to unravel over the coming weeks in conjunction with Sundry's Farm. Sundry's Farm is an incredible seed and culinary garlic grower in the Hagerman Valley in Idaho. Jillian and Rob are friends of mine that I am just so honored to showcase the incredible work that they are doing on their farm and to bring you this incredible garlic. We're talking about big seed heads that are going to produce more big seed heads if you're farming them or going to produce easy to peel and delicious cloves of garlic if you're using them in a culinary setting and I highly recommend both. So Look out for that ad and look out for the story that I'm hoping to tell with Sundry's Farm as our sponsor over the next eight weeks. I I, I can't wait to dig into garlic with y'all and to really showcase the work of Sundry's Farm. You can find the link in the show notes if you want to order your garlic for the year ahead. Pre-orders are starting now with shipping starting in September. As always, if you have enjoyed this or any other episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast, leaving a reading and review on Apple or leaving a reading on Spotify is a really quick and easy way to really support this podcast and the work that we are doing here to bring these stories of interbeingness to a larger audience. And so if you feel called to do so, if you can just pull it up, leave a rating and review, hit that follow and subscribe button so you get episodes delivered to you every week and lots of fun episodes coming up, it would just mean the world to me. I am thrilled to be back and I am thrilled to introduce you to this week's guest, Alana Collin. And I cannot, you guys, I cannot recommend enough that you check out her book, 10% Human. We have that linked and all the other things that we talked about in the show notes. And without further ado, here she is. Actually, I'm going to drop in on the middle here for people that are listening. We were just talking about, because I had reread 10% Human, and I was really struck by the way that you write, that there's this seamless transition of story, and it just flows in this beautiful way where it's weaving in all these different pieces together. And it's very different than other science writing that I've been reading, and I, mm-hmm. I was very struck by it this time. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that I really love about writing. Um, I really wanted this story to have the same uh, impact for the reader that it did for me, because it was very much a journey of discovery. Um, I didn't, I have a PhD in evolutionary biology. I'm a zoologist. Um, you know, I'm very much a biologist, but I didn't know much about microbes before I started. And, uh, I just, everything that I was learning, there were points where I was so excited by what I was reading that I, I couldn't keep reading. And, uh, 
I just really wanted the reader to experience that same sense of connecting the dots and, you know, the massive satisfaction of going, oh, that's why that happens. And that's why my life feels like that and my body feels like that, um, that I was getting from discovering all this new science. So, yeah, I didn't want to do the kind of classic um, nonfiction, especially with science books. You get a lot of subtitles and Mm -hmm. um, broken down chapters and um, boxes that explain a certain part of it. but. Mm I don't like that disjointed way of doing things. I I like the sense that you're just within a story and it's taking you where it needs to go. Um, That's pretty hard as a science writer because, of course, you have like this cloud of information that's in your head and you have to make it linear. It has to be, you know, you can't simultaneously say two things so you're constantly having to make decisions about what goes where in your story Mm -hmm. and what people need to know before they can know another thing and sometimes it's really difficult to make those decisions but um yeah it's it's something that I really enjoy doing it's a big part of writing that I I really love so yeah the idea was that it was kind of a murder mystery um and the you know from the beginning that the murderers, the microbes, um, but it's the unveiling of how that how that comes to be and why all the evidence points to the microbes. And uh, just like reading a murder mystery, the reader should have this growing. You you can't give them too much information because you don't want to give it away, but you can't give them too little information because they need to piece the the jigsaw together themselves. So it's just uh, I wanted to give them that feeling, that massive sense of satisfaction that you get from from uh, figuring out how something works. I think it's really beautiful in that way because you're not you're not hand holding. And I think to come to some of these conclusions as you're reading the book and to have these profound moments of oh, I'm starting to see the way that all of this is so deeply interconnected and your writing mirrors that sense of interconnectedness uh-huh. is is pretty stunning because there are some moments where you put some things together and there's just like, oh my gosh, this is <laughs> touching every piece of, of not just us, but every piece of, of life here on earth yeah. and, and sort of bringing this around a connection. And it's funny, I, I hate starting podcasts. It's, it's a very hard thing to figure out where to start. And I, I pulled this quote from uh, Lynn Margulis, who I love, and I, it felt a little bit apropos for this. Uh um, She says, we're all of us walking communities of bacteria. The world shimmers, a pointillist landscape made of tiny living beings. And (laughs) yeah, and I thought that that was, that was a good place to start in that there was just this, you start to see how everything is made up of this fabric of microbes and this sense of coexistence and collaboration yeah absolutely I mean it it always amused me I got I got one review in the early days when I you know was staring at my Amazon reviews every day um and it was I think it was a three-star review and the woman had said that I hit every I hammered everything that looked like a nail as in I was blaming microbes for every illness and I was so frustrated by it because it's a bit like saying I'm blaming the body for illness. I'm blaming cells for illness. I'm blaming DNA for illness. I'm blaming the environment for illness. It's all interconnected. So 
the microbes, the microbiome does have a role in a large percentage of, of illnesses. And in fact, I left, I wrote the book in 2014. So it's been nearly 10 years. And um, back then, no one knew the term microbiome. It was, you know, it's amazing how strongly it's all caught on. Um, But uh, I left so much out because the strength of evidence wasn't there. And I and I really didn't want to be um, I didn't want it to be tenuous. I wanted to be sure that what I was saying was true and to always make sure that I said when I was speculating or where the evidence was a bit sketchy, but there were hints of something. So I left out things to do with um, a lot to do with depression and anxiety. I left out things to do with dementia. I left out Parkinson's. I left out the role of the microbiome in cancer. And in the last nine years, all of these things have become, you know, very strongly linked to the microbiome. Um, to the degree that uh, you know, if you're if you're giving someone immunology um, treatment for immunotherapy treatment for cancer, and you um, also give them antibiotics, you reduce their survival chances. So yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. microbes are um, involved in everything, and not just within us, um, but around us. And I know you know about the microbiome of the soil, and I'd love to have learned more about that myself. Um, but yeah, they're they're so fundamental to to everything that we know. They are, and it it's fascinating just coming from the background that I come from, knowing at least a little bit about soil microbiology, and also about the teamwork that happens in ruminants amongst mm-hmm. microbes. That I think that there are all of these analogs and mirrors for looking at the way that these microbes have become fundamental and I you highlight this and I really like this team players mm-hmm. in this thing called life and also a big part of something that that speaks to the plasticity of us that this is something mm-hmm. that is ever changing and ever evolving as we interact with our environments and with one another as well mm-hmm. and I actually Wanted to, I wanted to pull this quote because I, I know that I had said this in my email to you that I've been thinking a lot about this idea of what is self and what is other, especially mm-hmm. when you so perfectly put us, right? These microbes outnumber our cells 10 to 1. So we are fundamentally so much other. But I think it also brings into question, and and I know that you start this with a, a health journey, and I've had a health journey. And one of the things I've noticed is that as my microbiome health has improved, right? As my digestive health has improved, who I am has fundamentally shifted in many ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <Yep. laughs> and and finding a sort of fascination in that lack of fixedness. And so I, I pulled this quote from you. Um, it's a little bit long, but I, I just loved it so much. In health, we like to think we are the products of our genes and experiences. Most of us credit our virtues to the hurdles we have jumped, the pits we have climbed out of, and the triumphs we have fought for. We see our underlying personalities as fixed entities. 
I am just not a risk taker, or I like things to be organized, as if these are a result of something intrinsic to us. Our achievements are down to determination, and our relationships reflect the strength of our characters. Or, so we like to think. But what does it mean for free will and accomplishment if we are not our own masters? What does it mean for human nature and for our sense of self? The idea that toxoplasma or any other microbe inhabiting your body might contribute to your feelings, decisions, and actions is quite bewildering. But if that's not mind-bending enough for you, consider this. Microbes are transmissible. Just as a cold virus or a bacterial throat infection can be passed from one person to another, so can the microbiota. The idea that the makeup of your microbial community might be influenced by the people you meet and the places you go lends new meaning to the idea of cultural mind expansion. At its simplest, sharing food and toilets with other people could provide opportunity for microbial exchange, for better or worse. Whether it might be possible to pick up microbes that encourage entrepreneurship at a business school or a thrill-seeking love of motorbiking at a racetrack is anyone's guess for now, but the idea of personality traits being passed from person to person is truly mine expanding and I love that this that's, that's, that's literally my favorite piece of writing in the whole book and it's my favorite concept in the whole book so I'm really glad you picked that out <laughs> I'm, I'm happy that, that that's how you feel because I that spoke to me in so many different ways yeah it's it's so fascinating isn't it it just it is mind-bending to think of of all those connections and and how you're composed and what becomes of you throughout your life yeah, and 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 I think it offers this opportunity for looking at how we are influenced by the relationships, and not just not just the ones that we think of, you know, in our life, our parents, our children, whatever that is, but also the relationships that we have with our microbes and all the entities that we come into contact with that we are sharing those microbes with. I was thinking mm -hmm. about this the other day as I milked my goat, right? And I was milking Tenny and I was thinking about this transmission of microbes that was happening just of us being in the vicinity of one another in very close quarters, right? As I, as I touch her fur or I touch her teeth. Mm -hmm. And then also of this transmission of microbes that would happen later on as I brought her milk inside and maybe made yogurt out of it. And, mm -hmm. and just the sense of how it is changing us at a fundamental level through what you call the gut microbiota brain connection mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. touching Absolutely. every piece. Yeah, and and that's um, that goes into where we got our microbes from because there are lots of microbes that are very similar in the human gut and in um, in cow guts, sheep, um, goats, and so on, and uh, also in the soil. So there's connections between what we what microbes we find in the soil and and the microbes in our guts. And it's interesting to note that we feel so much better when we're in touch with nature and when we're hands-on um so you know gardening and and activities like that are so good for mental health mm -hmm. and uh so are walks in nature i went to a talk recently where a woman was studying exactly what it is about being in nature that makes us feel happy and she'd looked at um colors she'd looked at sensations on the skin she'd looked at uh, the number of species you see um, whether they're birds or whether they're insects and she'd looked at the uh, the colors of the birds to see whether that mattered for what how happy you were after a walk in nature she'd gone so deep into it and found lots of interesting things but at the end of it I asked 
what's the role of the microbiome in making you feel happy after you've had a walk in nature or after you've done some gardening? And she admitted that that was not part of the research, but it strikes me that that's possibly more fundamental than than the things that you experience when you're doing, um, when you're out in nature. Um, and, you know, there are studies that showing that uh, school children do so much better in school and are so much happier when they have green space. And um, the more species are in that green space, the um, the the happier they are and the more access they have to the mm. soil, um, the happier they are. And I think that that's quite likely to be because they're setting themselves up with a set of microbes that are the ones that we we have always encountered, that we have evolved to live alongside. And that then um, makes us feel good. We're going to take a short break to introduce our first sponsor here at the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. And who is it an honor to introduce Sundry's Farm Garlic? Sundry's Farm is located in the Hagerman Valley in Idaho, where Robert Cropfall and Jillian Lakuski farm in rich volcanic soils. This isn't just any garlic, though. This is hand-grown and certified white rot-free garlic grown without herbicides or pesticides on a small family farm. Whether you're looking for seed garlic for next year's starts or culinary garlic, Sundry's Farm has created something magical over the last eight years. They've created garlic packed with flavor with big seed heads. That's big, easy peeling cloves, meaning whether you're buying it to peel and add to any dish or use medicinally or to grow it yourself, you're getting both flavor and the ease and let's admit it, the joy of big cloves. Now, here's the deal. I know Rob and I know Jillian and I've been following along their journey as they hunted and silversmithed, fished and smoke junked, and then finally began farming for over a decade. And I know a thing or two about the integrity of their work. With this garlic, you are not just getting certified disease-free garlic grown with the best practices overlooking the Snake River in Idaho. You're getting a story of garlic where every head passed through the hands of these farmers at least eight times as it was planted, weeded, the scapes were picked, harvested, dried, trimmed, and then shipped to your doorstep. You're getting garlic where no chemical fertilizers were used, just blood meal, fish emulsion, and kelp. Garlic that is of the earth and for the earth. You're getting garlic with big, healthy cloves that will either produce more garlic with big, healthy cloves in your garden next year or delicious dishes in your kitchen for the year to come. And you're getting all the medicinal properties of garlic to boot. If you're buying seed garlic, expect varieties bred for their size and their flavor. Hard and soft neck varietals like Music, Enchilium, Early Italian, Persian Star, Nootka Rose, Purple Glazer, and more. You can find their culinary garlic in both soft and hard neck grab bags and buy it in bulk and store it for the rest of the year to add that punch, spice, and earth to your meals. If you want to pick up Rob and Jillian's garlic from Sundry's Farm, go to sundrysfarm.com. 
That's S-U-N-D-R-I-E-S-F-A-R-M dot com, Sundries Farm, to pre-order seed and culinary garlic for the year with shipping beginning in September. There's no code needed. You just have to have your hankering for some incredible hand-grown garlic ready and in action and go to sundriesfarm.com. I cannot wait to share more about Sundries Farm Garlic over the coming weeks and to share Rob and Jillian's story. Please find their hand-grown garlic at sundriesfarm.com. I can't wait to hear what you think. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, it, it's funny. I think a lot about in the ways that we eat, we are made up out of place, right? And I think that this has been true throughout human evolution. I'll let you speak to that. But we are made up of place of the foods in our immediate environment of our interactions with soil or the air we breathe that then populates some of those microbes that we take in, populate our guts and all of these Absolutely. different things. And I think that our place has changed immensely as mm -hmm. we have gone from hunter-gatherer and really being tied to that sense of place and seasonality and into an agricultural space where we are a little bit more fixed and our interactions are a little bit different and then into urbanization. And I, I wonder if you might walk us through a little bit sort of that evolution of, of where we're interacting from a microbial standpoint. Um, and also with these very ancient beings, these microbes that are far, far older than any humans or mammals even, and, and how that makes up place. Yeah. I mean, you can see even from the, the most simple examples of people go to another country and they get food poisoning, whereas the people who are living in that country don't get food poisoning and they eat that food every day. And it's just um, a factor of what your gut is used to, what your body is used to and what it's experienced before. And um, with regard to seasonality as well, that's that strikes me as being more important than we give it credit for. So I wonder, I, it's, I, I don't know what the evidence is for this idea, but I wonder whether eating fruit throughout the winter when you live at high um, latitudes is actually as healthy as um, we think it is, um, because clearly fruit provides us with lots of um, great nutrients and vitamins and fiber and so on. But if our ancestors grew up eating fresh fruit in autumn or end of summer and autumn, and then um, preserved fruit, jams and so on throughout winter, then maybe it's not actually the best for us to continue eating fruit because my my guiding principle generally when I'm thinking about my own diet and the way we live is what would have our bodies encountered before? And um, so, yeah, I mean, I continue to eat fruit through winter, but um, perhaps not as much as I do in summer. Um, in terms of our history, um, yeah, we were hunter-gatherers until sort of 12,000, 10,000 years ago. And um, that obviously plays a big role in in how we should eat and who we are. However, we changed and we became agriculturalists around that time, which, as you say, led to us staying in one place a lot more and um, led to us associating with um, species much more strongly as we herded uh, cattle and sheep and goats. And that gave us um, much more opportunity for transmission between those species and us 
in terms of the microbiome. Uh, same goes for um, agriculture in terms of planting, because we would obviously have a different kind of contact with the soil than we would have had when we were just harvesting. Um, and, and those you can see, I mean, there are so many beautiful examples of um, co-evolution where you have, uh, you can look at the tree of life of, of one set of species and then look at the, the tree of life of something that lives on those species. So an example would be lice, for example, and um, primates. And you see this incredible reflection in the shape of the tree. Um, so when one primate species splits into two new species, then so the louse that's on the ancestral species splits into two different species on the new, um, on the new, uh, new primate species. Um, and you can see that beautiful mirroring across the tree over many, many species. And I suspect there's um, similar going on with the microbiome in us, um, according to the soil, according to the plants that we were eating at, in any given place and at any given time, and according to the um, varieties of cattle and so on that we um, that we used to herd. Um, and then now, I mean, it's it's muddled now. Um, not to say that that's a bad thing, because there are many advantages to it, um, and it's kind of a natural process of its own. But it does mean that we encounter things that maybe we wouldn't have encountered um, previously. Uh, I mean, a, a really simple example again is uh, different races and their tolerance of milk. So, um, drinking the milk of other species past babyhood was a um, a trait that was incredibly rapidly adapted to. Well, we took on the genes for doing that in such a short space of time, um, and they were selected for very heavily. That means um, people who had those variants did really well, and people who didn't either didn't breed or died out. So, um, now there are certain groups of people, different populations that can tolerate um, milk and lactose in particular into adulthood and others who can't. But when you live in a society where everyone's drinking milk all the time and everything in restaurants is made of milk, but you're not tolerant of it, that presents a, um, makes it seem like uh, an issue, a problem. Whereas in your ancestral home, maybe it wouldn't have been seen that way. So yeah, places is so important and increasingly modeled. Do you think in that example that our microbiome is contributing to the rapidity of our ability to adapt to eating certain foods or to, as opposed to some a trait that's being passed down sort of with environmental pressure that our microbiome is more of the, I'm trying to think of the way to ask this, more of the adaptive mechanism yeah, I, I think I see what you mean. And I think it's extremely likely and, and that there is evidence for that. So using the milk example again, um, people who are lactose tolerant do tend to have lots of um, species that break down lactose in their guts. And um, one of the reasons people become lactose intolerant when they are ancestrally um, probably tolerant uh, is that their their microbiomes are damaged. So they have the enzymes, their own human enzymes, um, lactase, that should break down the lactose in their small intestine. But they something has changed about their guts. Maybe they've been on a course of antibiotics or lots of courses of antibiotics. And that has damaged the populations of microbes that digest um, lactose in their large intestine. 
And um, because they play a big role in digesting lactose without um, causing trouble, uh, then they lose the ability to, to digest lactose, even though their enzymes are still there because nothing's mm. changed about their DNA. It's all about what's happened to their microbes. So, yeah, they, I mean, it's, there are so many different ways that evolution can exert pressure. And yet, of course, our, our microbiomes are playing a role in that and influencing how we how our human genes evolve as well. I, you, you teased out a piece that I think is important to bring into this, which I think is antibiotic use. And, and just, I was really struck in reading it, how many changes are wrought after the advent of penicillin mm -hmm. that, that we see these sort of maybe more subtle changes throughout history as we kind of go into agriculture, but that there have been in the last 70 years, and this is something we've talked a lot on the podcast about through a lot of different lenses, that over the last 70 years, a lot of things have changed. And I was struck mm -hmm. at, at just how much, how much changes for the microbiome when these mm -hmm. antibiotics come online. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I've, so many of the things that are going on in, in society and with our health and so on are really difficult to pinpoint what's caused them. And it's very easy to say, oh, well, this happened and therefore it must be that. But of course, so many things have happened. Yes. And um, it's and we don't know what proportion yep. of those things have, are contributing to any given problem now. And um, what we do know is that antibiotics do change the microbiome. Um, Sometimes they have a temporary small effect and sometimes they have um, a lasting effect. And a lot of that depends on when you're exposed. So you're much more vulnerable to antibiotics um, the younger you are and even vulnerable to the effects of antibiotics if you are um, a fetus and your mum is taking the antibiotics before you're born. That can have an impact on, on your health later in life. Certainly in the first three years of life, um, when your microbiome is still developing and finding um, the balance that will stick with you for the for the rest of your life, roughly speaking, um, then you are very vulnerable to the impact of, of antibiotics. And um, the, the sad thing is that we really overuse them, um, that it, it's estimated that approximately 50% of antibiotics are completely unnecessary. And I want to make clear here that I'm, I'm completely in support of antibiotics. They save lives and they're really important and they prevent awful things from happening. I have a story in the book about the first guy ever who was given antibiotics, who was given penicillin. Um, and he was a policeman who was doing some gardening and he got um, cut by a, stabbed by a rose thorn. Mm -hmm. And um, that turned into sepsis and he was given penicillin, but they didn't have very much of it. And they were trying to extract it from his urine so that they could feed it back to him. And initially he started to recover, but they just didn't have enough. And, um, and so he died ultimately. And, you know, God knows how many stories there are of that and of that same nature, but, you know, he was pricked by a rose thorn and he lost his life because of that. So antibiotics are, phenomenally important and um and useful um but yeah they have they have consequences one is obviously antibiotic resistance which um everyone's you know aware of and there are various efforts underway to find new antibiotics and ways to deal with it and the the other that 
far fewer people are aware of is um, the collateral damage that antibiotics do to your microbiome. And um, on an individual level, I think this is this is possibly a better reason to try and avoid unnecessary antibiotics than um, the resistance. The resistance can affect you on an in individual level because every time you take them, you your personal microbiome uh, becomes more resistant to these drugs. So they will be less effective next time you need them. But the collateral damage is also really significant. And you can tell just from, you know, so many antibiotics have diarrhea as a side effect. And um, that's because it's killed all your microbes <laughs> and they're all falling out. So, um, you know, it's quite simple, but uh, it's having that effect. The, the lasting impact is, is the big question. Um, but uh, yeah, as I said, it's earlier in life, it's really significant. And there's now even evidence that um, depression and anxiety is, uh, is more common in children who were given antibiotics. Yeah. When they reach, re reach later childhood, it's more common for them to have depression and anxiety if they were given antibiotics as a young child. And, uh, you know, that's just so you know, we're living in a mental health crisis. And of yes. course, there are cultural reasons for that. But we should be looking for every biological reason we can find so that we can reduce it without, you know, it's much harder to change our culture than it is to say, mm -hmm. okay, we need to use, do things differently here. Um, so yeah, it's, it's so significant. And uh, I, I think that everyone when they're Considering taking antibiotics, should talk to their doctor about what the alternatives are. Can they leave it another day and see whether their infection starts to get better? Will your immune system take over and deal with it? Can they use a different kind of antibiotic that's more specific so that it doesn't wipe out all of their microbiome? Um, these things, in, in conjunction with your doctor, sometimes they might help you to avoid them. And uh, that's for the best. I'm struck first, and I do want to say this, you did such a good job throughout the book of, of taking a multifactorial approach, right? That there is no one, one thing that we can pin anything on. And this is actually something that I've really been thinking a lot lately is how we look at the constellation of factors that are influencing our health, whether that's our mental health or our physical health. And that we want to reduce it to a single thing. We 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 want yes, to pin, so we want to pin it on one. No thing. one more so than the publishers. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. really don't want a book that says these ten things will go will change your uh, change your life. They want me to say this one thing will change your life, but that's not how science works, and that's not what kind of writer I am. So you know, I you, you've got to you do have to look at everything as um, as a constellation, like you say. And, you know, this is where I'm going to get my jibe at joking jibe at physicists in. Um, you know, often people <laughs> think that physics is the hardest science. But when you've got the level of complexity that you do in biology, especially ecology, um, I really think that that's what makes it hard because nothing, there's no, the patterns are so alterable by the conditions and yes. the number of variants in any given situation um, are huge. And, uh, yeah, we can't say any disease is down to one thing. Um, it's it's a bit like what happened with the Human Genome Project, where we were so ho hopeful that we were going to find the gene for everything, and then we could just work on that gene and switch it off or whatever, and then no one would have any disease anymore. And you know, look how that turned out. We're twenty years down the line, and and yeah, there are a handful where it's made a difference, 
But on the whole, we've just learned how incredibly complex the genome is and how it so many genes work together. And not only that, but how the genes interact with the environment to produce the response. And uh, the environment includes the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Which is going to play a role in that those epigenetic levers of turning genes on and off and that there weren't as many as we thought that there might have been in the first place. And again, I think we do. We get stuck in that genetic determinism and and stuck in wanting to just pin it on that one thing. Mm-hmm. I, um there's a beautiful, this is a bit of a side note, but there's a there's a beautiful, it's kind of more of a textbook actually, by um by a, a physicist, of course, um, named Friedhoff Capra, called Systems mm-hmm. View of Life, looking at just how complex ecosystems and biology are and the way uh-huh. that they weave in and out of one another, exerting uh, influence and that it becomes very difficult to model. And I think it's actually really important, especially now, to highlight this, that mm-hmm. in this space where publishers want it to be one single thing and where I think people want to find that one single thing instead of recognizing just how complex all of these organisms weaving in and out of one another are Mm -hmm. and that being an opportunity. And I think in many ways in reading 10% Human, you can feel the sense of that just in how an individual's microbiome can be so vastly different from another and change the way that they respond to a host of external stimuli of different drugs, of different hormones in their body, to the food that they eat, Mm -hmm. that it really is both a reason for why we are so complex, but also a a sort of... hmm sort of allegory or a parable for complexity itself, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Yeah. You see it everywhere and at different levels and it's yeah, all interconnected within our bodies and then into our communities, into our families, into our communities, into our habitats, into major populations. And, you know, you can even, you can characterize um, a country's microbiome and compared to another country's microbiome, it will be very different. You can tell whether someone was born by cesarean section or naturally from the microbiome. And yeah, those levels of um, interconnectedness and the patterns are so very variable. Yeah, absolutely. And I I just commend you for for taking that that approach of complexity. (laughs) Thank Um, you. (laughs) I think it's important. Um, And I do, maybe we should talk a little bit about how that does change. I mean, even the amount of food that we might absorb, the amount of calories that we might get from food fundamentally, or how we might interact with a drug or or sort of that mental outlay that is changed by the members of our microbiota. Mm-hmm. And- yeah. So with, with diet, um, your microbiome shifts to whatever you're eating. So it can change within 24 hours. Um, Obviously, microbes reproduce really quickly. And um, that means that what you eat for lunch will have an impact on the different populations of microbes that you have by dinner time. Um, So if you were to to eat as a vegetarian for two weeks and then um, suddenly start eating a huge amount of meat, then your gut might find that a little bit challenging. Because when you've been a vegetarian, all the populations of um, 
fiber-loving microbes will increase, and the ones that are used to having the remains of of meat. Not that there's a huge amount, because most of it is digested in the um, in the small intestine by human enzymes, but they will take over when you eat meat. So a sudden shift from one dietary type to another um, will cause a shift in the populations in your gut, which could be uncomfortable. Um, likewise, I always say to people when they are trying to eat a higher fiber diet to in- encourage a better microbiome that the best idea is to do that steadily um, and increase slowly because if they just suddenly switch to having 50 grams of fiber a day when they were having five grams of fiber a day, then um, their microbes will go nuts and they won't be able to cope with it and they'll produce lots of gases and it will be painful and um, very unpleasant. So, yeah, the, our food dictates our um, microbiome to some degree Um, and um, it also impacts on as you said um, what we take from our food so if we've been eating a meat-based diet and then we eat vegetables we may not be able to extract the full amount of um, nutrients or uh, other compounds that impact our well-being from from that diet because the microbes that do that aren't in large numbers at that time. Um, In terms of calories, I mean, the whole calories thing is so complex and it's actually what I'm writing my next book about, um, (laughs) which is, which is due out in uh, 2025. Um, Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So so the calorie, you get labels on the back of food that tell you how many calories something contains and those are worked out Uh, according to a formula, um, which tells you how many calories are produced, so the amount of energy that is produced from burning um, fat, carbohydrates, and proteins. And then you shove those figures into the formula with the amounts of fat, protein, carbohydrates in the food, and you get a number out of that, which is how many calories that food contains. This is what happens when you burn food. So it's it's completely legitimate in the sense that it is a measure of the energy in the food. However, literally, like when you literally, I just actually want to clarify, yeah. you literally light food on fire and burn it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And that's how that's how I mean that's not what they do for every single cereal bar now. They just use the the formula. Yeah. But that's how those um those figures were calculated. Um and um but in the real world, of course, we're firstly we're not burning with fire our food and secondly a lot of factors play into what we take from our food how we extract the nutrients so you've you've got your first round of of that which is what happens in your small intestine with your human enzymes that break down um, the different parts of your food into smaller components that can be absorbed into your bloodstream and then you've got what happens to that food as it goes into the large intestine where there's far less human involvement and it's much more about what the microbes can extract from it. Um, and and the, your, your particular set of microbes will have a huge influence on how much energy and how much other benefit outside of energy you get from, from your meals. Um, so some people may be extracting 20% more from their, um, from their meals than the um, nutrition labels say. And other people may be extracting quite a bit less and they may also be getting someone might be getting lots of short chain fatty fatty acids that are beneficial to our health out of it. And someone else might not be because they haven't got the microbes that can do that for them. 
And those short-term fatty acids um, do things like calming your immune system down and making it respond appropriately to appropriate um, molecules. And they impact your mental health by um, sending messages up your vagal, vagus nerve from your gut into your brain. And um, they impact your gut lining's um, strength so that it prevents things that shouldn't be going into the bloodstream going into the bloodstream. So they are really significant, even though they're not about calories, they um, have a big impact on your health. Having said this, um, I want to put the caveat in, which I did, I think, put into 10% human, that your appetite, your brain should be controlling how much you want to eat. So if you get 10% or 20% more calories from your food, that should satisfy your appetite more and make you want to eat less. And if you get less from your food, then your appetite should be asking you to eat more to compensate from, for that difference. So the while it might seem like a very nice explanation, oh, I extract 20% more nutrients from my food and therefore I put on weight, um, it doesn't work like that. The brain is in charge of how much weight you carry and it will make you eat the appropriate amount of food to carry that weight, even if the amount of weight it wants you to carry is inappropriate or you know, um, elevated beyond what it should be. That comes down to what's going on in your brain, not um, what you're, what you're, how many calories your microbes are um, extracting. Your microbes play a role in what your brain tells you to eat, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> May I ask you a question? And if this is out of your wheelhouse, that's fine. It's just that we sure. work, we've kind of gone down here and I'm a little bit curious because one of the things that we've talked about on this podcast a decent amount is looking at nutrient density as one of what I think are many markers of satiety mm -hmm. and that we've seen this decline in nutrient density actually owing largely to loss of microbial diversity in the soil. Yeah. that is a part of bringing these nutrients into plant matter and then into animals and mm -hmm. seeing this reduction at, I mean, there's some pretty wild numbers out there that, that some of our fruits and vegetables are 50% or more less nutrient dense than they were 70 years ago around, mm -hmm. around that same time. Right. And especially as we've applied things like glyphosate that can have a sort of antibiotic effect inside mm -hmm. of, of soil life. And so I, I'm, I'm curious if, if there is an interplay too of, to your knowledge of not just our microbes and our brain, but also the food that we're eating, adding to this idea of satiety. Mm -hmm. So um, the first thing to note is that I agree with everything you just said in terms of the the nutrient levels in food. Um, it's so significant, and I just don't understand why our governments aren't taking control of this stuff because it, it affects the health of everyone so fundamentally. Um, you know, your populations could be more healthy, more intelligent, more productive, and that could save us so much money on education, on healthcare on um you know sick leave and so on and i just don't understand why you wouldn't well i do understand that you know there's a lot of political things going into it but it's such a shame that we don't have political structures that enable us to think forward in that way and look into the future look you know 20 years ahead instead of the the, the election cycle um as you say like vegetables will take up nutrients 
firstly, if there are no nutrients in the soil because it's been depleted over rounds and rounds and rounds of of growing with no um, real input back into it, if we're just using fertilizers um, and pesticides rather than organic matter that encourages um, a truly rich soil with um, a large um, biodiversity of of microbes of all kinds, then the you know our food can't take up that those nutrients if they're not there. And secondly, like you say, if you're adding um, antibiotics and pesticides and so on, um, even antibiotics that are in manure in some organic farming systems, if the if the animals have been treated with antibiotics, they end up in the soil. That can then lead to um, what should be an organic organic crop being grown as as actually not organic. Um, and that interacts, that prevents these, the microbes that are in the soil interacting with the plant and um, encouraging it to take up vegetables, enabling it to, uh, sorry, nutrients, and uh, enabling it to take up nutrients. Um, and so you get a poorer product. So in terms of satiety, there has been a theory of obesity, weight gain, that, um, that we are primed to absorb to, to take on board a certain level of nutrients. And that if we can't get that level of nutrients from eating a normal amount of food, we double our food intake in order to, to satisfy the nutrient requirements. And therefore we get too many, many calories. Um, it's not well supported by evidence. I reckon it's one of those things that plays into it. Um, but uh, I think the bigger issue is more likely to be the the impact of those poor quality foods on the microbiome and on, especially when they're contaminated with pesticides and other chemicals that um, are not part of our natural background um, evolutionarily, that then impacts the microbiome, that impacts the integrity of the gut lining, that um, then impacts how our immune systems are working. And with um, increased inflammation, that changes how the brain is working, that changes um, the weight set point, And that then encourages us to eat more food because our body is trying to put on a certain amount of weight to, to reach um, a falsely um, ele elevated weight set point. Um, so yeah, all interconnected, but I think the mechanism is slightly um, more convoluted. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think this is something that we might return to again and again, that mm -hmm. the mechanism is convoluted and that there are many factors that go into any one thing. You you can't point at something and say, this is it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I kind of want to go back in this to this idea of this decrease in biodiversity, because I think that we just described all of these different factors that are going into decreasing biodiversity in, in soil, right? That even if you're not using, if you're using manure from animals that have been treated with antibiotics, that you're, you're losing some biodiversity in that. If you're eating meat uh, that has been treated with antibiotics, there is this, this reduction in your own microbiota or even something like triclosan and some mm -hmm. of the antibacterials that are, are so pervasive in mm -hmm. our, in our modern environments, um, that it's not just antibiotics, but it's, it's a lot of the food that we're eating and, and some of the cleaning products that we're using and even toothpaste. I know that triclosan is a, a pretty common and toothpaste of all things. Well, it's actually, I don't know uh, where exactly, but it's subsequently been banned in toothpaste, um, certainly in the UK, possibly in the EU. 
um, since my book came out. I have no idea whether it had any impact on it, but yeah, it's no longer an ingredient you can have in toothpaste because they recognized that it was fundamentally harmful to human health. Mm -hmm. I think that it is still, it is still allowed in the U S but we tend to be incredibly slow to adopt these things. Um, and I actually wondered, I wanted to go back and I wanted to read something because I think that you did a really, a really good job of kind of connecting the human body and landscapes in this passage and this decline in biodiversity and, and just how how devastating that can be. And, and maybe we can, we can kind of go from there because I loved, I love this passage. Um, these clues, the gastroenteritis and the antibiotics hinted a common theme that short-term disruption of the gut's microbes can have long lasting effects on the microbiota's composition. Imagine a virgin rainforest, verdant and dense with life, insects rule the undergrowth and primates hoot from the canopy. Now see the loggers move in, chainsawing the forest's leafy infrastructure established over millennia and bulldozing the rest. Imagine, too, a weed invading, perhaps having hitchhiked as a seed on the wheels um, I wrote that down wrong, of something, and then crowding out the natives as it takes hold. The forest will regrow, given time, but it will not be the same pristine, complex, unspoiled habitat it was before. Diversity will drop. Sensitive species will die out. Invaders will flourish. For the complex ecosystem of the gut on a scale a million times tinier, the principle still stands. Antibiotic chainsaws and invasive pathogens pull apart the web of life that's forged a balance through countless subtle interactions. If the destruction is large enough, the system cannot bounce back. Instead, it collapses. In the rainforest, this is habitat destruction. In the body, it causes dysbiosis, an unhealthy balance of microbiota. The storm has started. <laughs> I might, can you hear it? Because I, I can't. Have a- I have oh okay good because I have um skylights and it's the rain is really heavy and it's it's quite noisy but as long as you can't hear it I can't and as long as it's not distracting for you no too. it's fine for me yeah okay no no nope. one there to be background noise um yeah I mean biodiversity oh, what a big topic um is also <laughs> the um my my husband my late husband was a conservation biologist and um he studied biodiversity he studied um population change amongst many different species across the planet um, he ran um various indices that were trying to track and measure um the impact uh on populations of, of um human activity um, and I did my PhD within a conservation organization in the UK called um, the Zoological Society of London. And uh, so I have been surrounded by um, conservationists for most of my academic life. Um, and uh, I think what we don't appreciate is that you can undermine so much if you um, don't look after the little guys and mm-hmm. the soil. Um I still think this is probably under underappreciated even in conservation circles. The soil is fundamental to everything um, because it's fundamental to um, the plants and then the plants are fundamental to various animals and various other animals are then dependent on those other animals and including us, of course. And so um, looking after the, the biodiversity of the soil should be, again, another world-leading problem you know it should be on the agenda of every politician um that it's so very important that we do that and that plays into um the diversity of our guts as well 
and the microbiome of our skin and so on. So uh, yeah, it's biodiversity is fundamental in whatever ecosystem at whatever level, whether you're looking on a really macro scale or you're looking in a, in a super micro scale of even what's on the surface of your skin and how that's impacted by hand washing or using sorry that's my cat don't be sorry I like these. I like I like uh animal interlopers on podcasts <laughs> he is the noisiest noisiest cat and he thinks he's a human he comes in and says hello to me um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, even, you know, using hand washes or using antibacterial products, um, they have a massive impact. And and sadly, they don't even make a difference in terms of the um, dealing with hygiene. It would be more effective just to use safe water since it's a physical process that you're trying to undergo, not a chemical one. Mm-hmm. I like this because I think that I think that we're seeing all of these different mirrors, right? That we're seeing the macro and the micro mirror one another, that that what is happening in our gut isn't isn't necessarily different than what's happening in, in soils across the world. Mm-hmm. And, and that we can see some of these, these different effects sort of echo one another. Mm-hmm. And and you've said twice now, and I think that this is really important, and I think we might get into this a little bit more too, but it's not moving the dial in the way that we approach these problems. And, and I was struck at that too, you know, towards the end of the book, as you talk about, whether it's talking about fecal transplants or it's talking about some of these different levers that we have to pull or just prescribing fewer antibiotics, making sure that antibiotics don't make their way into our food system. Um, you know, whether that's as a growth promotant for animals, whatever that is, mm-hmm that we are beginning to describe these things and we feel so desperately behind in making shifts or changes. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, that's just feel rings so true that we are behind on all of this stuff and the people who are supposed to be keeping us running on time are not doing their jobs and, uh, the, the priorities are in the wrong places. And, um, you have to look at the underlying stuff. You have to look at the causes. And I think when you look at healthcare, we treat, we treat, we treat. We don't prevent. And we don't think about the systems that lead to the problems. And, and in fact, I think we massively oversimplify um, those systems. We, we blame people for their lifestyles. And I do not think that people's dietary choices and um, involvement in exercise are the fundamental issue. I think yeah. it's what goes on underneath that. It's what kind of food companies do we have and what are they putting in our food and what are they taking out of our food um, to the extent that it's no longer even food. Yeah. And um, what does that do then to our bodies and our brains and how we're supposed to run and our immune systems and what they're supposed to be able to resist? Um, for example, I say in the book um, that that cancer occurs in the body multiple times a day um, because it's just cells going awry and multiplying uncontrollably. Most of the time, your immune system picks that up. It realizes that those are not things that should be there and, and they're not things that should be happening and it destroys them before that they, they can take over. Um, we know that cancer rates worldwide are going up massively shockingly and 
especially childhood cancer rates, the, the rate mm. of change is horrifying. It's, you know, especially when you think in terms of evolutionary time, we're talking about changes over years and decades, not, not hundreds of years, not thousands of years, not millions of years. And yet we're not saying, what is it that's making this happen? What's happening to our bodies? What are we putting into them? And there's, yeah, to some extent we can blame food, but if the fundamental food, like you say, even if you're trying to eat really well and you're eating from um, raw ingredients, um, then you're still faced with the problem that the soils are depleted. So you're not going to get the level of nutrition you need. And then to the worst end of the scale, you've got food that is grown using enormous amounts of chemicals in very depleted soil and um, is then processed to within an inch of its life. More chemicals are added that our um, bodies have never encountered before, and they may not be harmful in themselves, but what they what they're not supposed to be in our bodies, and they are we are encountering them every moment of every day of our lives, all um, in conglomeration in a way that we've never done in our history before. And uh, and then we're lacking the nutrients that should be there, the fiber in particular, um, but also other forms of real food to the point that how how is a body supposed to run a complex body like ours if it's not actually being fed healthy, normal, actual food? It's being fed chemicals and the residue of food. Um, and I, yeah, I just feel that that, that getting to the root of that solves so many other problems yes. for sure. It's difficult, but I also feel it's much more of a political problem than, um, we're willing to acknowledge. It's much more about regulation, controlling food companies and big agriculture and making sure that they, um, they are limited in what they can offer us. You know, because yes. I don't think that as individuals, we should be forced to look into every chemical, every product that we that we select in our day to day lives It's just not possible to no. research everything that you encounter. Um, and yet that's basically, you know, personal choice, freedom. Well, I don't want to be free to choose between various different poisons. I I'd quite like someone to say, no, you can't sell that because it's not good for it's so not good for humans that it's not okay to sell it. Um, so, yeah, I think we've got a long way to go to shift things from the bottom up, but it could make such a difference to the way that we live if we did it. I think, too, one of the things that you said in there that is really important always for me to highlight is that we often put the onus back on the individual mm. for things that are not are are not the responsibility of the individual, that there yeah. should be all of this research or that the onus is on you to look at what you eat or to exercise instead of to look at the way that there is, trying to think about how to say this diplomatically, but a, a race to the bottom in terms of the profitability of companies using this sort of chemical milieu that we have never seen. And, and, and to speak to, to what you said, that we don't understand how all of these things interact in concert. Again, mm -hmm. it is a constellation of things. Mm -hmm. We are not just exposed to one or two things, but that are, and I'm going to borrow one of your terms, that this is the new normal. 
Mm-hmm. That the new normal is this sort of soup that we're swimming in mm-hmm. and all of these different interactions, the likes of which our bodies have never seen. And in that, you know, when you're describing the new normal, it is about the rise of diseases, of allergies, autoimmune diseases, digestive troubles, mental health problems, and obesity. Mm-hmm. And looking at the common thread that runs through all of these spaces and And I think that that threads too through the new normal of what we are exposed to. Yeah, absolutely. I I completely agree. And I I think this sense of individual responsibility is is so overblown and it's so unfair on the people who are suffering um, because everyone else is judging them for one thing and that level of stigma and shame is horrendous for something that that is fundamentally not your fault with health effects of its own no doubt absolutely yeah yeah and um i mean i think the crazy thing about that is we have been trying to lose weight for 70 years and basically no one has Basically, every single country is fatter than it was before. No one country has lowered its obesity rate, despite the many billions that have gone into it on a a personal level. You know, the gyms and the diet foods and the diet books and the um, exercise regimes and everything else that we are exposed to constantly to try and get people to be slim. But they don't work. And we have so much evidence that diets don't work. We even have evidence that dieting may be harmful. And to the point that we there's been, I'm not going to remember who the organization is now, but the, uh, a major US organization has said that we should not be recommending that people diet because it's ultimately bad for their health to diet. And Increasingly, we're becoming aware of the the underlying causes of obesity that are not diet and exercise. Diet and exercise are how you get fat. They are not why you get fat. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's just so incredibly unfair to tell a person that they are the reason behind their own weight problems when the entire planet is suffering from this problem. And we actually know that they are not the reason behind um, their weight problem. And and the same goes for so many of the other um, 21st century illnesses that you listed. Um, You know, something like 45% of people have allergies. And 100 years ago, barely anyone had an allergy, definitely not one that could kill them. And, uh, you know, we're changing a whole society around it. You can't take nuts on planes. You can't take nuts into schools. And rightly so, because it can kill people. (laughs) So, um, but why, but why, you know, why, what, what is underlying this and how can we tackle that instead of um, just dealing with the consequences of people's health plummeting um, at a point in time when we should be living longer, we should be living healthier because we have all this technology and we have access to all these nutrients and we have less po- poverty and actually somehow we're going in the opposite direction. Not sure if this is a personal question or not, but you said something in there that diet and exercise is the how, but but where's the why? And and one of the things that I think that you do throughout the book and that you've just done now is 
finding the question that's underneath some of the questions that we're asking. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is, I think that this is really important that we begin to do this more often, that mm -hmm. there are so many layers of complexity that getting down to, I'm not going to say a single question because I don't think that exists, but getting down to some of these foundational questions mm -hmm. is incredibly important because we have to kind of cut through some of the noise. And so I, I just wonder if there is something about the way that your framework, your mindset works, whether that's as an evolutionary biologist. I know you say at the beginning of the book that one of the, the things that you feel is that it is your job to search for meaning behind mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Being, being an evolutionary biologist, I think, is what drives this. Like the the constant desire to understand how something has come to be the way it is, what have been the driving forces that have put us there. Um, with regard to the obesity question, there's been um, a flawed theory for a long time, which is called the thrifty gene hypothesis, which basically says that um, we could starve if we don't eat. And therefore, when we have access to food, we go crazy and we eat uh, nonstop. There is so little evidence that supports that idea that our genes are driving us that we are innately greedy and that we must conserve energy and pile on energy um, at all costs and if we encounter sugar we should shovel it in there because we don't know when we're going to see sugar again the that is not the case when we look at populations that do go through famine they do not become overweight in between they don't even go slightly overweight they become healthily lean um, with good muscle quality. Um, it's not the case in wild animals, even when they have access to limitless resources of food, they don't get obese. They have biochemical triggers that will make them overeat in circumstances like prior to hibernation, prior to migration. That's not their choice. They didn't do that because they thought, oh, wow, I really want to stuff my face with that, that stuff. They, they do it because something shifts in their biology, something shifts in their brain that says now is time to fatten because of what's coming up. And then they lose that weight again appropriately. And um, yeah, what we're not doing is thinking about if that's, that that is the evolutionary question behind obesity. If If we say that it's just, we're driven to eat as much food as possible, then yeah, Obesity is a natural outcome of that. But given that that actually doesn't have a whole lot of support or any support, um, we have to look for another driving cause. And, and my contention is that that driving force is a pathological one, not a natural innate one. It's something that has gone wrong in our environment, something that we're facing now um, that is, is making the difference in terms of how much weight we store. And uh, yeah, I go into that a lot in my in my next book. That's the that's the root of my next book. So you'll have to wait. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's about what your what's happening to your brain and inflammation. Um, I think the the grand theme of Ten Percent Human, which I didn't necessarily know when I started writing it, is inflammation. Your immune system gets riled up. It doesn't know what it's doing. It attacks the wrong things. It doesn't attack the right things. And um, inflammation is rife without, within your body. It affects how your brain functions. It affects how your organs function. It affects your metabolism. And, and microbes are part of 
the way that we regulate how um, the immune system is working and how much inflammation we have, whether it's appropriate or not. And so damaging them leads to inflammation. And inflammation remains at the heart of the next book, which is dealing specifically with obesity, um, that it is the, it's, it's inflammation that makes that happen. And mm. it's inflammation that we wouldn't have encountered 100 years ago because the drivers of that inflammation weren't there. I love, I love that you're going to connect the dots and I didn't actually set out to, I didn't know what your next book was about. I didn't mean to keep um, pulling on those threads. I, I, it's, I love that there's that through line too of yeah. inflammation. I got, I got fascinated by it when I was writing about the, the, the role of, you know, there's just one, there's one experiment um, that I talk about in um, 10% human that I always talk about whenever I'm talking about this, where they take uh, the microbes of, um, of twins and one in the twin pair of humans this is one in the twin pair is obese and the other one is lean and they put those microbes into germ-free mice so they one mouse will adopt the microbiome of the obese twin and the other mouse will adopt the microbiome of the lean twin and obviously this is done on a larger scale with many many mice the mice that have the obese microbiome gain weight very rapidly and they do so despite exercising and they eat less than they were eating before. And the mice that get the microbiome of the lean twin um, remain lean, stay lean. And so, you know, where's the willpower in that? Where's the thrifty genes? Where's the um, yeah. chocolate and uh, laziness? There isn't any. It's no. simply the microbiome driving one element of, of what regulates the amount of, of energy that we're storing as fat. And when I heard that, I just felt like there's more to this. Yeah. And I spoke to um, a fabulously interesting scientist um, who at the time was the uh, president of the Obesity Society in the US. And he explained to me um, how your appetite is, is, yes, there's some level of control. You can decide not to eat that chocolate bar, but it's also autonomic, like breathing. You can, you can control your breathing um, I could tell, tell you to breathe only five times in the next minute and you'd be able to do that. And uh, I could tell you to do that maybe for five minutes or 10 minutes or, you know, you could really concentrate and do it for a few hours, maybe a day. I don't know. But well, for one thing, when you fall asleep, it's going to go back to how it needs to be. And can you do it for your whole life? Absolutely not. No chance. So yeah, you can control yourself of whether you want to eat a chocolate bar or whether you want to have a larger portion of a perfectly healthy meal one time, two times for a month, for a year. Can you control that for your entire life? No, because the brain is in control and it will change so many things about your biology, so many things about your appetite, um, so many things even about how much energy your body uses in order to reach its target um, energy storage uh, amount and and as an individual you do not have the power to control that that's why people who lose weight generally put it back on on again a couple of years later yes absolutely i actually think this kind of gets at one of the things that i really wanted to talk to you about was this idea of of self and other because i think that you're talking about the book in collaboration, and I just now I actually see that there's more self and other because there's also the the other and sort of the way that corporate interests drive the way that we eat and 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 
that there are these external influences even beyond the collaboration that's happening within our bodies. Mm -hmm. But I was really struck too in, in talking about the inflammation conversation as somebody who has an autoimmune disease that underlying a lot of this is the ability to recognize at a fundamental level self and other, but also to recognize the microbiome don't know if it's as self, but as, as, as friend, as old friends. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, it's uh, the, the old style hypothesis around the immune system was that it could distinguish self and other. So self is your own body cells and other is a pathogen that comes along and tries to make you sick. And that makes a lot of sense until you think, hang on a second, but the immune system also tolerates the microbes that live within us, and they're definitely not us. So um, that doesn't make sense. And also the immune system doesn't tolerate an old cell that is dying and needs to mm. be cleaned up. It treats that as other. And the immune system doesn't tolerate um, uh, cancer cells. It needs to clean those up. It doesn't tolerate the mess that our brains create every day. At night, when we're asleep, it cleans that up, even though it is self. And um, and now, of course, we have this problem where things like pollen, which um, are not certainly not self, but they are historically tolerated in a healthy body. Pollen is tolerated by the immune system. Oh, here comes my cat again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, so, self is is is. Pollen is tolerated by a healthy immune system, but it is, is not tolerated um, in allergy. So self and non-self is actually not so useful. What, what's more useful is what's good for us and what's not, not good for us. And yeah, old friends is part of the old friends hypothesis is, you know, they've evolved alongside us and therefore um, we should tolerate them. And that goes for the microbiome and, and it also goes for um, pollen and so on. And of course, what we eat is non-self. Everything we put in our guts is non-self. <laughs> and um, and yet we tolerate that. We should tolerate that. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's actually a whole different balance from, from that idea. And there are all sorts of um, chemical signals that let the body know what matters and what doesn't. And there is a training system that starts when you're conceived and is particularly important when you're being breastfed um, because uh, it helps your your immune system to learn what's acceptable and what's not. When you get your microbes from your mum, that gives you um, a set of training instructions that the that your immune system can work on. And then, as you're introduced to new foods, you've got the. Um, uh, if you're breastfed, you get breast milk alongside that. That again helps the immune system to recognise what should be tolerated and what's not. So, for example, the the advice around peanuts has changed lately, um, and it seems to be much more beneficial if pregnant women eat peanuts during pregnancy and continue to eat peanuts and feed their babies peanuts from the very beginning, mm -hmm. um, even mi mixed into milk. Um, if they're breastfeeding, if they eat, if the mum eats peanuts, then the baby is much more likely to tolerate them later later down the line. If they're not breastfeeding, it's I believe advised to mix a tiny, tiny bit of peanut butter into formula so that the immune system gets that training at the appropriate time and then can tolerate it, even though it's non-self. You brought up one of my favorite parts of the book, which is what it means to pass our microbes on to the next generation. And I think that within 
within that were so many fascinating and and just truly stunning and interconnected spaces of what it means to to give our our microbiome in many ways to the next generation um, yeah both through <laughs> big responsibility, big responsibility, both through vaginal birth, through breastfeeding. And I was struck too with the complex interplay of biological processes that are working to bring these microbes, you know, from, from the balance inside of the vagina throughout pregnancy and even into breast milk and, and just really stunned. And so I kind of wanted to, to talk about that a little bit, because I think that this is important that these aren't just these aren't just our microbes. These are the next generation's microbes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how's the rain for you now? Because it's very loud. I, I can't like hear it at all. Okay, I can't good. hear it at all. Um, yeah, so... Are, are you still Are you still okay with it? I know that yeah, that can I'm be a fine, little... Yeah, I'm fine, yeah. Okay. It's getting, it's getting quite dramatic out there. But... <laughs> <laughs> good, I'll show you. I'll show you the, well, there's a stack of cushions in my kitchen, but that's the, that's the view I have out onto my garden. So it's... Uh, it's quite a view of the rain. Um, so yes, we are responsible for passing on our microbiome to our babies. And once again, it's something that um, women hold the responsibility for <laughs> largely. Um, and it has an impact whether uh, a baby is born. Well, firstly, what you consume in pregnancy, how your microbiome is in pregnancy, whether you take antibiotics and so on, that begins to affect um, a fetus before it's even born. Um, and then they, they do have microbes before they're born, but, um, the, the biggest influx is the moment of birth when they're suddenly exposed to, um, a huge number of microbes that they've never encountered before. So, um, of course the, the natural way for this to happen is a vaginal birth. And, um, initially it was thought that, uh, the, Vaginal microbiome was the the really important thing um, for for a baby's health. We now understand that the fecal microbiome also has a really important role to play, possibly more important than the vaginal microbiome. They're very different. Um, the the vaginal microbiome is a different pH. It's a more simple community. It has um, different different species in there entirely. Um, and the fecal microbiome is obviously very highly related to uh, our diets. And um, as anyone who's given birth will know or watched birth, um, it's it's not the cleanest process. And no. most babies are born facing backwards. Yep. Um, and uh, they obviously encounter a bit of stool on their way out um, as everything is being squeezed at that point. And so they basically get a face full of poo. And uh, midwives will try to avoid this from happening, but um, it's possibly better if the baby does get a face full of poo. Mm -hmm. And um, and that will set them up. It will cover their face. It will go up their noses. It will go down their throats. It will get into their guts. It will cover their skin. And it's uh, it sets the tone for um, the rest of their lives. Um, if a vaginal birth doesn't happen for some reason and someone has a C-section, then the baby gets a whole different uh, selection of microbes. So they, the first thing they encounter is skin and hospital microbes. So um, it's a whole different selection once again. Um, less biodiverse, again, than fecal at least. 
and and of course there are some nasties in there because um because hospitals are uh, breeding grounds for highly resistant bacteria where um the other ones have been cleaned away and killed off the sensitive ones and things like c diff and um e coli and so on become the dominant species and that means a baby's set up in a whole different way and it doesn't mean disaster it does mean things are different for for that child and that it does come along with a whole host of different levels of risk in terms of um their likelihood of developing allergies of autoimmune disease of obesity um i'm not sure where the research is on mental health but it really wouldn't surprise me if that was involved yeah. in mental health as well um and there are, have been some people who have made efforts to um, work out whether we can seed babies that are born by C-section with um, the vaginal microbiome. Um, it does kind of work. There are a lot of doctors who are against it because they're worried about things like um, group B strep that could um, harm a, a newborn baby, even though if mums aren't generally tested for group B strep anyway so they would encounter that if they were born vaginally um and but what what's needed now is more research where they include the fecal microbiome in that um seeding process um to see what impact that has on the future health obviously these studies take ages because you're one for one thing you're measuring what the microbiome of the child is like in the first few days weeks months of their lives but then you want to know age 20 do they have allergies? How's their mental health? What's their BMI? And so on. And even age 60, what's their you know, mortality rate at that point? So it's a very long-term study to do. It feels like it must be worthwhile though, because I mean, and hmm, I get caught in this as somebody who loves to read science writing and, and a variety of different things that there does seem to be some element of the way that we have evolved to do things, right? That perhaps it's not an accident that a child is born facing backwards, mm-hmm. that there is is something favorable about that that could be many different things, including the idea that there might be some sort of inoculation from stool during that process. Absolutely. And, yeah, and the fact that the, the two holes of note are very close together. If that was harmful to a child, they wouldn't be because evolution would have sorted it out. Yeah. It, it would have got rid of the people who had the variant that that produced that, that type. Yeah. And, you know, it's no accident that toddlers put everything in their mouths. Um, you know, they're doing that because that's a way of acquiring microbes, among other things. And uh, the, the issue is not that they put everything in their mouths. It's that we've got things in our homes that are harmful to them, um, like chemicals and um yeah, potentially food poisoning. But if we had a, a healthier food environment, that that would be much, much less risky in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's, it's an evolutionary pathway that's taken place. It almost feels, I think, you know, watching young children that you can almost look through this lens is that there is a constant process of inoculation mm-hmm. of environment into mm-hmm. into child. And I think that you see this, you know, as a farmer, I see this too with goat kids, with calves um, of uh, licking things and eating different things. And what is just on mom's teats that kind of hang low to the ground and mm-hmm. are also exposed to fecal matter. Absolutely. And- exactly. It would be further 
forward on the cow's body if that didn't if that mattered or if indeed it could even be helpful that they're there because um yep. it's so easily move forward so ours are nowhere near so yeah exactly <laughs> um and I was struck actually bringing that piece in and I I, I do want to touch on this because this is something that I hadn't heard or even considered was how some of these bacteria move via the immune immune system into breast milk I was just oh, yeah. I was I, I, I was enraptured by yeah. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea and just amazed at the body's capabilities and how far it will go to inoculate child yeah um absolutely i mean this is absolutely one of my favorite my favorite stories this was definitely one of those things where i'm reading it and i can't actually keep re- reading because i'm so excited by what i'm learning mm-hmm. um, the so that the discovery was that um when uh, a baby is being weaned and introducing solid foods to their breast milk diet um the foods that the mum eats affect the microbiome and then the immune system has these wonderful little cells called dendrites and dendritic cells and then dendritic cells have arms and they reach out into the gut they grab microbes they curl them up into themselves they travel through the bloodstream they go to the breast and they shove those microbes into the breast milk so that the baby (laughs) when it's eating carrot for the first time has a microbe that can digest carrot for it. I mean, just it's so cool. It just it blows my mind how specific and yeah. wonderful that is. And uh, yeah, it leads to me telling people all the time, make sure you eat what you eat what you're trying to feed your baby, <laughs> which I'm sure is very annoying. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's almost magical, isn't it? How specific that process is. Yes, and I think that that actually sums something about the book up is that there is some magic in in just how complex and how beautiful some of these processes are, how some of this, you know, you call it teamwork, how some of this teamwork is between microbes and humans to shape how we are, but not just microbes and humans. I mean, this is cows. This is you talk about the bobtail squid. You talk about the sack winged bat. And, <laughs> yeah. and <laughs> I know that you researched bats. I did, um, yeah, and I managed to get them mentioned seven times. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that during the second read that they they made they made quite a few appearances, which I thought yeah. was very enjoyable. I'm a fan of bats as pollinators and many other things. We, um, but that this is a team effort, and that. Maybe in looking at this and beginning to see it, at least how what happened for you was to change your idea of how your body is moving through this world. And, and when you're feeding your body, you are also feeding these members of the microbiota that are coexisting and collaborating and becoming a team with us to, to keep Absolutely. us healthy. It's, I think... It, that was a really noticeable sensation for me when I was writing the book that I started to think about my body as as a team. I started to eat thinking, what do I want, but what do my microbes want? And actually, I think thinking about it now, it's not dissimilar to the sensation I had when I was pregnant with my daughter. Um, especially further down the line when you sort of start to think of yourself as a we and not an I and you 
you kind of end up talking to your baby and you go right let's go upstairs now and I think while I was writing the book I had that same sensation of come on guys we're gonna go and have some kimchi and, uh, <laughs> yeah I think it's it's very much a collaboration and um it's nice knowing all this stuff about how important they are because you are a little bit more conscious in in how you treat them and how you treat yourself and and what you're doing when you're eating and when you're sleeping and exercising even influences the microbiome so um yeah I feel like you you have that sensation for a reason you know that they they are contributing to your happiness as well and you want to add to that Do you think in that that you've also experienced a shift in the way that you see collaboration and sort of, you know, further spiraling out from that space since our microbes are so embedded in our ecosystems and communities and in our shared interactions with one another and and maybe into into the bigger spaces that actually might yeah, they, it's, yeah. It's interesting you say that because I I am um... I've gone back and forth a little bit on on what my second book would be and an idea that I pursued for a good few months was um, a book about community and that was partly from experiences that I'd had but um, I think as a writer as well you know I work alone and I'm actually really extroverted in the kind of classical sense of I get energy from other people um, and so working alone is a terrible career choice for me. Um, because I, I feel like I'm imploding almost if I can't get information out of my head. And, um, and I was really exposed to this need for community and the impact that other people have on your, on your mental health and on um, your daily lives. And I think in particular, moving from London out into the suburbs, um, of, of the south of England there's such a stronger community here where I live now I know all my neighbors and um I, I communicate with them all the time I we have a whatsapp group that we all share things on and everybody knows what's going on in everybody else's life and I think in my 20s that would have horrified me the idea that I wasn't anonymous but now I love it because it just feels like I'm in this safety net and I get pleasure from helping other people and I'm glad to know that there are people who will help me and um, I feel safe yeah I feel like I'm there are so many people on the street who I would happily give a key to and um, you know have them have them in my house when I'm not there if I need help with something and and likewise I hope that they would feel um, comfortable the other way around. And I, I think humans are very social species and the way that we set up our um, societies, particularly in the West, um, is, is kind of sad and kind of damaging and that we have to find new ways to interact with each other, given that we don't live in big groups anymore. I also think when you have a, a child and you discover just how useful it would be to have a lot of other people around to help you out with everything, mm-hmm. um, it's just a little bit nuts that we try to do these things on our own because um, we're not supposed to. And, no. uh, you know, the rates of, of postnatal depression are an indication that we're not doing everything right there. Um, and, I, yeah, I'd love for there to be 
ways for community to be given more focus and mm. um, for people to be aware. And I think the science behind it is fascinating as well. The hormones mm. that we have, neurotransmitters that we have that encourage us to be social and um, game theory of how we interact in groups. It's just, it's so fascinating. But yeah, I didn't end up writing that book. In fact, a close friend, friend of mine wrote um, a very similar book, which is called The Social Instinct. Um, mm. So, and she was writing that while I was researching the idea. So I'm kind of glad that I moved back onto the obesity idea. That book hasn't come across my desk. And I'm so, I'm so glad that you brought this up. I, um, on a personal note, I guess, that this has been become a big focus of the podcast is that when we're looking at some of the questions that underlie some of the questions, I think our disconnection from community is actually one of those one of those big questions. And this keeps yeah. coming back up in a variety of different places as I talk to a lot of different people is that there is a lot of grief actually for what we have lost in terms of our network of people that would have supported us throughout time and having mm -hmm. that. I actually just read a book um, called The Wild Edge of Sorrow by Francis Weller. And he he talks a lot about grief in a couple of different manifestations, but one of them is both in our loss of community that we might have had in, in a more hunter-gatherer setting, but also grief for things like loss of biodiversity, that there is mm -hmm. almost a felt sense of that in the in our in in our community and culture as a whole, um, mm -hmm. and so I, I just think it's fascinating that this is something that keeps being teased out. That this is that we crave community, and that community changes us on a, a neurotransmitter level, and indeed, I think on a microbial level too. Yeah, absolutely, it surely does. And yeah, I I agree with you. It's another one of these fundamental things that we're not keeping up with, as as we were saying at the beginning that um, our governments haven't kept up with this, the impact of the change in the way we live and the change in the way we work and our isolation and our very um, individual, you know, it's, it's, I think we're much more competitive individually yes. in, in the way we live as well. And that that can have some significant um, impacts on us. And I mean, we don't even have to go back to hunter-gatherers because, you know, it's not that long ago that we lived in multi-generational houses and um and we lived in in a way that where people were in and out of other people's houses without needing to be invited uh, you know now we've got to the point where we we don't even call someone without sending a whatsapp first to see whether they're okay about us calling them um let alone going into their house and um, i'd like to think someone could come and knock on my door pretty much any time and i would invite them in and make a cup of tea yeah but um that's not how we we mostly live unfortunately and and yeah i think it's really fundamental to mental health to um how we think about our our environment that we live in as well that if you're invested in other people around you then you care more about the place that you live and um mm. the impact you have on that place um i wish that we could move back to some or move forward to some new model of of being connected with other humans I wish the same thing. And I think the only thing that I've come to is that we have to start to talk about it mm -hmm. um, to figure out what that model might look like and to, mm -hmm. to move towards that again. So, yeah, I, I agree. I think one of the good things to have come out of, of COVID and the, the increase in homeworking was 
is although I definitely see that eroding now in the UK there's not many people there's a lot of people who are effectively being forced back into offices five days a week but I think one of the nice things is people have recognized just how lonely it is to be um, working at home on your own all the time and there's so many now group workspaces of people who have nothing to do with each other in terms of their work but they go to the same place every day just to have that community and I'd love to see more of that in you know in smaller towns and villages as well um, so that everyone can feel like they're not alone on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, me too. And I think living rurally, that's something we've lost that sort of sense of community center and space mm-hmm. of work. And I actually think that's something that comes out of the book is kind of an overcoming of competition in favor of collaboration and coexistence yeah. and yeah. an idea of of community in that sort of as above, so below and mm-hmm. and here is this beautiful example of community thriving within us and so how do how do we kind of begin to externalize that mm-hmm. absolutely i'm curious as we begin to wrap up um it's been almost 10 years you know are there any big things now that you want to talk about i know that i pulled an article before this you mentioned peter turnbaugh in in the book and he actually just completed a little bit of of a study using crispr to to target single strains of of for antibiotics to be more single strain and to target one single strain oh, of bacteria really? Um, um, in packed it packaged in a bacteriophage, um, which I'm not going to be able to describe well, but I I can send <laughs> that to you. And I thought that that was interesting. That a lot is beginning to move where maybe we can have a more targeted approach and a little bit less of a blanket approach. Or if there was anything else that's come in the last ten years that feels worth mentioning here. I think what I would take away from the last 10 years and, and how things have changed is the incredible level of scientific support for, for mm. how important the microbiome is. I think when I started writing it, I was genuinely frightened that I was going to get trolled and that scientists were going to come out and say, oh, she's made it all up or she's massively overhyped it and um, it's not really that significant. And um, that has clearly not been the case it is far more significant than we ever could have imagined in 2012 2013 when the you know the first um big uh genre uh paradigm shifting studies were being were being conducted um and as i said earlier that's seen uh recognition that microbes have a role to play in all sorts of other diseases um, that we that we didn't really understand in back in 2013, 2014. Um, and uh, that I think it's also become more integrated. So um, there was sort of, you know, the microbiome crew of scientists who were doing this, this crazy thing with microbes that surely has nothing to do with us. And now you see studies where everything is, is uh, considered together. Um, that's what role does the microbiome play in this? What role does um, genetics play in this? What role does epigenetics play in this? What role does the environment play in it? How does it all contribute um, and and create something together? Um, and 
Yeah, I think it's the other thing that's really astonished me is how quickly it's become part of the public's mm. consciousness. Um, pretty much everyone knows that they have a microbiome, that it is important for their health. It's changed our food environment. You know, so many people are eating fermented foods. Um, people take probiotics, even if they don't really understand what they're doing, they still consider it important to take probiotics. Um, and we just have a whole, you know, fiber has become a really important nutrient um, when many people didn't even know what it was 10 years ago and certainly wouldn't have thought it was uh, something significant that they should worry about, you know, I would say more than any other nutrient. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've been amazed and impressed by how much a part of our daily lives the microbiome has has become in such a short time. I think for me, I, I'm I'm curious for you too, if that speaks to just how fascinating the story is, both yeah, the story that you've written, but also the story of collaboration that's happening inside of our bodies that you can't help but, I mean, but catch on because it's captivating. Yeah, it really is captivating. And it's, um, I think the other thing that people really love about it is it's modifiable. You know, you've got, yes. you can't do anything about your genes. You can't do anything about who your family is. You can't, you often can't do anything about the situation you're living in. Um, but you can alter mm. your microbes and it can have a really big impact on, mm. and on how you feel. So um, it's something, you know, it's obviously something that then um, people jump on in terms of making money, but um, also of something course. that people can do to improve their lives. I love that. I love that, that there's some plasticity there and mm -hmm. in a world that sometimes feels like we can't change anything that, that mm -hmm. here is something that is truly plastic and has turnover. I, I really can't tell you how much I enjoyed the book, having read it twice and just how beautiful your writing is and, and that it does read like a murder mystery, that it, <laughs> it does have a, a sense of, acceleration and of getting to put things together. And I appreciated too, within the course of this interview, that so much of this was about getting away from reductionism and into that sort of interdisciplinary multifactorial constellation mm -hmm. of, of what makes us up on, on both small scales and large. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I just love nuance. Nuance is so much more yes. interesting than being than being told, you know, it's this or this. It's the nuance that makes life cool. And it's um science is all about nuance. And if it if it's you know, even one study might turn out to be wrong, but the, the point isn't that science has failed, it's just that we needed more. And and that's what uh mm. that's what I love about writing about science, that you can explore all of those things and bring them all together and join those dots. It's incredibly mm. satisfying to do. And um, yeah, it gives me an excuse to read a lot of things about stuff I'm interested in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, then that's, a, that's a great pleasure. Um, well, thank you. I nuances. Uh, I think one of my favorite things and something I hope that, you know, there's space for in the, the space of this podcast. So thank you for exploring nuance. Um, do you want to tell people where they can find you? Uh, we'll have links to all of this in show notes and, and a little bit about when the next book is coming, if you if you feel yeah. like sharing so, that. So the book that we've been talking about is 10% Human, How Your Body's Microbes Hold the Key to Health and Happiness. And um, it was published in the US um, by HarperCollins in 2015. 
um, in hardback and then 2016 in paperback. And um, you should be able to find it pretty much anywhere. It's nearly 10 years old now, so some smaller bookshops won't have it anymore, but it's online. Um, and you can find me. I have a website, alanacollin.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, I think that one's at Alana Collin. I actually know. Oh. I think it's at alana.collin. And I'm also on Instagram, um, which is at Alana Collin. And uh, the book I'm currently working on um, shall remain nameless because it doesn't have a name. Yep. Um, but we'll also, it will be published by um, uh, Grand Central Publishing in the spring of 2025. So I'm currently writing it. Um, and it zooms in on the obesity element of 10% human. So there's a strong connection there. And it focuses on the underlying reasons of why we gain weight and um how the body manages its energy and manages its fat storage which is absolutely fundamentally different from anything you've ever heard before about obesity weight gain weight loss uh, because i am not talking about diet and exercise i'm talking about what drives diet and exercise um, and I can tell you it's fascinating. <laughs> I sound, I mean, I think that we got a little bit of a peek here and it sounds absolutely fascinating. I, I, I genuinely can't wait. And I think that it's something that's desperately missing in the mm. space. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Not at all. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mind, Body, and Soil podcast. If what you found resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? This act of reciprocity helps others find Mind, Body, and Soil. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, that's K-A-T-E underscore K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for the clips from their beautiful song Over the Edge from their album The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>